Welcome to the Wet Podcast, episode number three. Welcome to the Wet Podcast, episode number three. I had the pleasure this week of talking to Howard Rheingold, which was a very interesting conversation. I can't wait to uh, to let you hear it. A couple things to take care of first. You can see the show notes for this at ericmarshall.net slash wet. That's ericmarshall.net slash wet. That's E-R-I-K. Marshall with two L's dot net slash wet. You can follow me at emarsh on Twitter as well. This was a really good interview. Howard uh, Rheingold has uh, a lot of energy and a lot of great things to talk about. We talk primarily about education, uh, online education, distance education, uh, philosophies of teaching, and uh, using technology, not just in teaching, but in everyday life. And it was a really nice, really nice conversation. Uh, I've been reading Howard Rheingold's stuff since, since I started paying attention to technology back in probably the late 80s when I was still in high school and maybe a little bit later. I've been I've been aware of him for for quite a long time. He was at the forefront of a lot of thought about technology in the early days and he continues to now. He's he's got some incredible uh, very interesting and provocative theories and philosophies. Um, He's very much about peer learning, people learning from each other as well as from teachers. And, uh, you know, I think that you'll really enjoy this this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Again, you can find me at ericmarshall.net. And uh, let's get into the interview. Thanks for listening. Hi, Howard. Hi. Hi. Yeah, first of all, this is probably a, the hardest question I'll ask, but can you introduce yourself? I'm Howard Rheingold. I am not easy to describe. I currently am a lecturer at Stanford University. I am working with the Digital Media and Learning Project that's sponsored by the uh, MacArthur Foundation around innovations in digital media and learning and i'm the author of a bunch of books <laughs> good enough <laughs> um i i think i first came across i was trying to think today like when i first came across your work and um i couldn't really remember because you've always been kind of part of my reading and kind of like online consciousness i guess for quite a long time I know the f- one of the first times we interacted was when I was doing the attention theory uh, blog, which is now unfortunately in a an indefinite hiatus. But um, and we had little um, interaction there, and I think you were you were talking a lot at the time about the uh, concept of infotension. Right. Well, that was part of uh, two things. One was dealing with my college students and their issues around the 
potential distraction of their devices, both in the classroom and in other parts of their lives, and with the, the larger uh, issue about what do people need to know? What are the, the essential literacies today around social media, mobile devices, living for the most part online? So I did write a book that was published in 2012 called Net Smart, How to Thrive Online, published by MIT Press. And in that book, I outlined five different literacies or, or fluencies, if you want to describe them that way, that I felt were essential, the kind of thing that I would want my child to know before they went off to school, the kind of thing I, I felt that an employer or an employee to know. So very generally, um, what are the, the skills that didn't exist before the web, before mobile phones that are now pretty important and I felt that the foundation skill, the first one in the book, was about attention. And uh, I've looked at the, the, the research pretty thoroughly about attention and multitasking. In fact, the, the late Cliff Nass, who did the breakthrough research that demonstrated pretty conclusively that most multitasking is less efficient rather than more efficient than and single tasking, uh, he, his office was right down the hall from me, and we talked mm -hmm. about this often. So I feel that, and and there's a, a certain amount of evidence to back me up, that it's not so much that the, the media today are especially um, distracting attention magnets, which they are, <laughs> it's that nobody has really taught us it's not really part of our education to learn how to control our attention in the face of those distractions. Of course, you learn to a certain degree how to control your attention while you're driving an automobile or you're going to die. Although I'll have to say with a number of people texting, putting on makeup, uh, eating, um, <laughs> dealing with their kids while driving uh, on the freeway, it's a little bit scary how little attention management is done um, in the the automobile. And after looking into that, there's a great deal of literature, both from the neuroscience side and from the side of contemplative traditions about how people can gain control of their information by doing a, a little bit of exercising. Right. And that, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of people look at new technologies, you hear it a lot that it's destroying society, it's destroying our attention. You know, you have all this attention deficit disorder. And, you know, uh, as a teacher, a lot of times, I think a lot of people feel they have to entertain their students and keep them engaged as, you know, because you're competing with devices and everything. But, um, but that's always been my stance as well, is that you can train your attention, you can train yourself to pay attention differently. And I think kind of train us to pay attention, as you say, with multitasking, which has been proven to be completely ineffective, right? In most cases. Um, and so, do you do you run across a lot of people who, you know, what do you say to people who are kind of doomsayers? You know, the people who say, you know, the all these technologies are are just ruining our kids' attention and all that stuff. Well, that's a, you know, that's a more complicated issue than it seems at first. But uh, I've been very careful 
first in response to critics, and then as a result of my own understanding of technology criticism, that it is um, factually incorrect and counterproductive to act as if humans have no agency. So it's not just a matter of semantics to not say technology is ruining our attention, rather to say our use of technology is ruining our attention. Um, to, to treat technology as completely autonomous and humans um, having very little say in how we're going to react to it or no say in how we're going to react to it is some, something of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So first of all, I emphasize that, that there's something that we can do about it. Um, another complication is that the human relationship with technology has been a complicated one, particularly for the last 10,000 years since the, the invention of, of agriculture. You know, I, I think very few people would want to go back to being hunters and gatherers, spending um, your time hunting for food. Uh, agriculture freed 90% of the population from uh, providing food and and made it possible for us to have specialization for us to have doctors and scientists and teachers and 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 artists and I think most people would agree that that's a a good thing also made it necessary to have standing armies if if you're going to have a, a large stash of food you better guard it or raiders are going to come and get it slavery and hierarchy those were all part of agricultural civilization. So if you want to have the conversation about is technology good for us or not, we really need to zoom back and have a, a, a much larger conversation. But I think also what complicates issues around the classroom is that, well, I certainly was one of those uh, young people who simply could not sit still. And I'm not the only critic who has pointed out that expecting a seven, eight, nine, ten year old to sit in a desk all day long and be quiet um, is unrealistic. And besides being unrealistic, maybe not such a good way to to educate people. And and certainly, I'm not the first person to say that our uh, marvelous public education system really was created in order to produce good factory workers during the, the beginning of the age of industrialization, and agricultural workers who lived by natural rhythms, um, you know, you, you got up when the cows got up and you went by the, the seasons, into people who would work by the clock and would, would work on assembly lines. And that system of education worked very well in the 20th century. Now we're in a different milieu in which knowing how to find your way around information and, and knowledge and to communicate, to problem solve and think creatively are more important, that system of schooling is un, uh, under strain. So add to that the um, attractive distraction of that mobile device in your pocket or that laptop in the classroom and you've got a, a complicated situation. So I, I think saying that the technology alone is the problem is not, is not going to get at the heart of the problem. But notice that I, I keep referring it to it as an attractive distraction. There's, mm -hmm. I have no doubt 
that the screen, whether it's on your laptop or it's on your mobile device, is an attention magnet. We simply need to develop habits and social norms about when it's appropriate to give in to that temptation to pay attention to it. I mean, you know, you don't give in to that temptation to cross the double yellow line while you're you're driving <laughs> your your car. Right. We can learn to do things. Right. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Some some worry that the pace of of technology kind of outstrips our our ability to to adapt to it in certain ways. I don't I don't necessarily agree with that, but you know, last week when I talked to Paul Levinson, he went back about 3000 years to Socrates. 2,300, and uh, talking about the invention of writing, right, and how um, Socrates thought it was a terrible thing, and we wouldn't be able to remember things anymore, and, you know, writing will make us lazy, right, and there are trade-offs, right? Now, you've gone back 10,000 to agriculture, so I'll have to challenge the next person to go further back, but I I do, um, you know, I do hear a lot of people say that, you know, our, our technology outstrips our ability to to adapt but it sounds like you wouldn't agree with that i don't agree with that either well i think technology outstrips our ability of our institutions to mm -hmm. prepare us so education is by its nature a conservative institution conservative in the sense that that education exists to preserve and pass along the the values and the knowledge of the previous generations. So that is, by definition, conservative. We're trying mm -hmm. to conserve that that information. And, and for, for many reasons, schools change their way of doing things very slowly. Technologies mm -hmm. change very rapidly. And so, uh, you know, I actually would agree that we're that we have a collision between our ability to mass educate people about the best way to use technologies and the availability of very powerful technologies. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the computers that put um, the uh, first people on the moon um, used uh, probably about as much memory as is devoted to um, a, a little animated icon on your mm -hmm. on your mobile phone. Yeah. So we we are literally carrying around tools that are millions of times more than NASA had, and people of an understanding of how to use it. For the most part, it's peer learning where teenagers teach each other. Yeah. You know, when they're pretty good at that. I contest this idea of the digital native that that they are that just because you are. Um, born into a milieu in which there are devices and you use them, that you necessarily know a lot about how to use them. In fact, that's a lot of what I teach college students. I mean, after all, um, you learn to read and write fairly young, I don't know, fourth or fifth grade. Why do you continue to, to study composition? Uh, you know, knowing how to compose a sentence, how to compose an essay, how to do research, how to persuade, all of those parts of, of rhetoric are, are part of education. I want to loop back to, to Socrates for a minute here. Um, well, he was right for his time. He also objected to books because they're dead. They don't speak to you. Right. Socratic education was a conversation with a teacher who knew subject matter. And you can't really ask questions in the book, and the book can't really answer you, although we're entering an age in which that's beginning to be true. Well, how many students can you educate that way? In, in, mm -hmm. in Athens, 
there were eight slaves to every citizen. It was forbidden on pain of death for slaves to, to be educated. So it was for a, a tiny elite. If you believe that real democracy, in which you don't have eight slaves for every <laughs> citizen, requires an informed and educated citizenry, I think you're going to have to make that trade-off. You're not going to be able to all walk around the Grove Academy of Socrates. You're going to have to learn by reading and writing. And so <laughs> I think we do gain things and lose things with technologies. And it would be good if we paid more attention to what we're gaining and what we're losing. And I think without a doubt, we are losing things um, with all of our, well, for one thing, we're losing solitude. All of those little interstices of life when you're waiting in line or um, you're, you're bored, uh, you, can, you can pull out your device and play a game or text somebody. I find, and I found when I was raising my daughter, that having that alone time, time to be bored, that creates space in which you can play and create and, and learn. So I think that, yes, we are losing some things. It depends on your values. I do think that, that we have multiple crises facing the human species, and the best asset we have are the minds of all of those billions of humans. And if somehow we could educate those people and, and harness their problem-solving capabilities, undoubtedly we would have to use technology to do that. We could face some of these problems that we have. Mm -hmm. So again, complicated trade-offs. And I think a lot of the discourse, the, the headlines, the, the television programs, they, they concentrate on this dark black and white and they leave out the many shades of, of gray. And we really need to understand technology with a little bit more nuance, I think, in, in order to, to master it rather than be mastered by it. Yeah, I think that's that's uh, that's very well well put. Uh, I feel like a lot of the criticism you hear is kind of a top down thing. This technology is doing this to us, and like you said at the beginning, it, it leaves out human agency. And I think that's I think that's right. You mentioned uh, educating people and, and kind of putting all the minds together. I know you're a big fan of. Um, of kind of collective intelligence, um, you know, uh, collaboration with technology. Um, do you can do you know of can you think of ways that maybe that that is happening now? Perhaps that we're we're getting together to solve problems in ways that are novel. Well, um, if you want to know how to build a guitar, or mm -hmm. um, uh, let's say uh, configure a uh, a server on a network or um, identify a certain kind of butterfly or repair your roof, <laughs> you go to YouTube right. and do a search. Um, <laughs> millions of people are educating each other. So I think well, technology is not a, a, a magical answer, but I think that it is magical in one sense in that for, for the most part – Learning has been a monopoly of schools. You had to go to school to learn most things. That is no longer true. You can learn many, many things online, by yourself, and with others. I think to a certain degree what is lacking is knowledge of how do you go about that. Mm. And that's the old liberal arts tradition, which is school is not just about conveying bodies of knowledge. It's about 
training people on how to learn uh, so that they can go out and learn things by themselves. I think we need much more of that. <clears throat> I, I led a volunteer project, talk about your collective intelligence. This was all with people I had never met and didn't know who answered my call on social media to create a handbook for peer learning. So if you go to peeragogy.org, that's P-E-E-R-A-G-O-G-Y.org, you'll see that we created uh, a way for a group of people who want to learn something together, but none of them are the, the teacher of that subject. How do they find out what the resources, what the texts are, what the videos are? How do they qualify those and arrange them? Um, how do they create learning activities? What technologies do they use? How do they organize their, their learning? Um, that knowledge is not really taught to us. People are picking it up on their, on their own. But the Pyragogy Handbook is meant to be sort of a beginning to help people with peer learning. And we're seeing all kinds of things spring up. There's um, P2PU. Um, there's the School of Everything. There are dozens of these platforms. These are not your so-called MOOCs that kind of broadcast knowledge. These are platforms that enable individuals to learn things together. So I think that there's tremendous potential for learning outside of school, but, and I think this is a good role for school, is we need people to, to know how to learn on their own and not just sit there passively and take notes from what the teacher tells them. Yeah, I think that's especially important now because I think that with a lot of teachers, like sometimes the students are ahead of the teachers in certain areas. You know, I, I have, you know, I, I teach uh, at the university level, I teach mostly film, but screen studies. I've taught um, a class called Issues in Cyberspace. And a lot of times I go to teach and Either they already know what I'm teaching, or they or they know things that I don't know. So you know, I try to figure out how can they learn from each other, how can I learn from them, and that in every semester I learn something from my students. No, no doubt about it. You've really put your finger on on what I think is important. I no longer call them students; I call them co-learners. Co-learners in the sense that they're they're not going to be individual bankers of knowledge who compete with each other yeah. they are going to cooperate to learn together they learn more effectively that way it's more fun that way but also co-learning with me that as you said there are things that i learn from my students every time i encounter them mm -hmm. so in fact um, i am putting together with what i consider to be an all-star team of um, mike mike wesh whose videos have been viewed tens of millions of, of times. You may have seen that the, the web is using us. Um, Jim Groom, who does a fantastic course called DS106. Jonathan Wirth, who does a fantastic course called Phonar. A number of other people. We are uh, planning to put on a, a course starting in mid-September, going into December. It's an open, online, free course on for teachers on how to teach open connected online courses. So um, again, this is not the MOOC model where you make a bunch of videos and you have people take a bunch of quizzes. Mm -hmm. This is really about people learning together, um, the learners participating, the learners coming up with the assignments, um, a lot of blogging, a lot of meetings together. So um, 
That's going, going to be at uh, connectedcourses.net. Uh, okay. Starting around August 7th, there'll be a syllabus up there. And I, I would invite you and others who are, are, are teaching college courses to, to join us in that. But I think co-learning is definitely a key to making tra- traditional classroom learning more compatible with what students and the rest of us are doing outside the classroom these days. That sounds great. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. And I'll also, um, I'll put links in the show notes to this episode on a lot of these things. Although when this one goes live, I think that will be already over. But I'll put links to the others. And I'll definitely check that out and tell some of my um, colleagues about it. Because that sounds great. I like the idea of turning the learning process onto learning itself. Right. You know, how do we learn? How do we teach ourselves things? Which I think is a is a great skill. I think there's a lot of, you know, I, I remember you bring to mind an experiment I did back, this must have been around 2001, 2002. I had my students kind of co-construct the syllabus. Um, I, it was a composition class. I had a um, a reader that I liked, and I, ha- I had them choose the readings. I had them, I, I had them read uh, Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed to talk about the idea of uh, you know banking education versus engaged pedagogy and stuff like that. And I had them come up with a syllabus and the objectives and the writing assignments, and I did it in two different classes. And one class took to it really, really well. They gave themselves assignments that I never would have come up with. I wrote as well in the class. Um, I did the assignments. And they, they 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 gave themselves more work than I would have given them. The other class, it was a complete disaster. I had one very vocal student in particular who was like, you're the teacher. You're supposed to know stuff. You're supposed to teach us these things. You're the authority. This is what I paid for, et cetera, et cetera. Now, here we are. This is That was that was over 10 years ago. And I wonder if, if things have changed in the classroom. I don't know. Some of it's just ego, I think. You know, that would prevent a lot of teachers from doing something like that. But, you know, I might consider trying that, uh, something to that effect again, maybe this next semester in the fall semester um, and see how open students are to it. Because the ones who took to it really got a lot out of it. I, th- I think they did. And I got a lot, of, a lot out of it too. But I think there is this um, sense of, you know, I'm paying for this class. I'm taking the time to do this. And you should teach me things. It's that top-down thing. Do you have a strategy for breaking through that kind of resistance, both on the teacher and the student side? Well, I certainly deal with it. I, I try to um, make an end run around that situation by making it very, very clear in the syllabus that I'm expecting participation and co-learning, and this is what that means. And if you want to take this class, understand that it's very different from your normal class and my expectations of you are very different from the normal expectations that a teacher has. And your expectations of me as a teacher ought to be different as well. And don't take the class if you're not ready for that. And if you want to take the class, um, I want you to give me a written commitment to doing it. (laughs) So I I try to eliminate that, but I'll have to say that the anonymous evaluations that I got at the beginning when I started doing this, where people were saying, you're the subject matter expert. We, we don't want you to shut up. We want to hear more from you. So I do frame things. I do little mini lectures. I do little demos. I enter into the conversations. I intervene. But I do open a very large amount of, of the space there for, for the students to do things. I'm interested in, in how you could construct, a, uh, get them to construct a syllabus 
I've only got a quarter. So a quarter mm -hmm. is 10 weeks, and one of those is break, and then there's the first class and the last class. Given that constriction, how, how do I get them to construct a syllabus? I mean, I've got a syllabus. Do they, they take that apart and put it back together? How, how exactly do, is that done? Well, when I did it, I, I gave them a um, – they had – there are a certain number of readings from which they could choose. Uh, I had them get together in their own interest groups. Some were education majors, some were science majors, stuff like that, and and talk about what they wanted to learn in the class. And as a consensus, we came up with objectives for what we wanted to learn. Now we had sixteen weeks, so we could spend a week and a half doing this. You know, yeah, um, that's key. Yeah, and then you know we came up with word counts. How much they, there was a university requirement for how many words they had to write. So I told them they had to write a certain number of words at least, <laughs> right? And uh, and then we came up with okay, here's what we're going to read, and here's when we're going to read it. And then he, you know I had them come up with with some of the assignments, and then I gave them permission, I guess, to to change course as the as the course went on. You know, if if it seemed like the people started wanted wanting to do something different or go a different direction and by consensus we would we would change. So it was pretty flexible. But there there were parameters in terms of like here are, here is here's the reader. Here are the, you know, 30 texts or whatever you can choose from. Here are, you know, um we'll organize them into interest groups. But you know, I I could spend that time Doing that in ten weeks, you know, you're wasting a tenth—not wasting, but you're spending a tenth of the class if you do that, at least, right? Constructing yeah. that. But I gave them some strong parameters in terms of, you know, here are some pathways you can take. Here are some things if you're interested in this, you know. And and as I said, it worked out in one class and not in the other. So, but it was yeah, yeah it was it was an interesting experiment. I'm glad I did it, and um, I could see. I, I normally I, I'm like you. I like to guide, do mini lectures, because I am the subject matter expert to an extent in, in what I teach, but I always think that students learn better from themselves <laughs> than they do from me, and, they, and people like to participate most of the time, and they get something out of it. If you can do that in a structured way, it works, um, but I haven't, I haven't tried that again in terms of like the structure of the class, you know, most of the I time. Do, Go ahead. I do ask the students to co-teach with me, okay. so during the first class, I write the, the themes of the following weeks on the whiteboard, and I ask the students to gather around the themes that most interest them, and to somewhat self-organize so that the groups are, are roughly the same size. And then I say, okay, each one of you are the, are the co-teaching team for that theme. I want you to come up with a plan for, it's a three-hour cl uh, class, mm -hmm. um, I want you to come up with a plan for an hour of that class. You don't have to convey everything there is to convey from the texts. You need to figure out what's important to you and the other students and come up with some activities and presentations that will engage them and lead conversations around those. And uh, meet with me in my office about your plan, and then we will do this together. And they take to it. And Unfortunately, it's by the by the fifth or sixth week they're really excited about it, mm -hmm. and it's time to wrap it up. If, if I had a semester, it would work uh, better because it takes a little while for the momentum to build up. But actually, they get quite competitive about coming up mm -hmm. with more interesting, engaging activities for each other. And um, I'm not gone. I'm there guiding them, and I'm participate. And I give a little at the end of the, each class session, I give a little mini lecture on 
the readings are going to do during the next week and why I selected them and what's important and what to pay attention to. And so it's, it's not a complete departure from the teacher as expert, but as I say to them, I'm going to give you some of my teacher power. And in, in return for that, you're going to take more of the learning responsibility. And you asked quite a while ago about the teacher part of this. It's scary to do that. It's scary to admit that you don't know everything. It's scary to to give up some of the control that you had scripted. You could script out every minute of every class, and many teachers do. Giving that up and having uh, the trust that the, the students will fill that um, is frightening. But when you do it and it and it repays you, then you get more and more interested in doing that. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I think there's a fear factor. It's it, like you said, it's scary, right? That you know, maybe you're not an expert in everything, right? And who, yeah, who is really right? Um, yeah, I'm going to open my mind up to that some more. I think I've I've been. I think when I when I started teaching at the university level, it was in the Ninety nine, two thousand, uh, right around there, and we didn't have a lot in terms of um, online stuff. We had—I th- I don't know if we had Blackboard then or not. I don't think we did. Um, it, everything was in the classroom for the most part. Uh, cell phones were just starting to get to be a thing. You know, you'd start seeing some people with these big phones or whatever. Um, but we didn't have as much in terms of online um, uh, educational opportunities, right? Like we like we do now, um, and. It, at the time, I, I thought of myself as kind of an early adopter. You know, anytime something new would come up, I would I would jump on it and see if how it would work to help my students learn better and learn with each other. And I think over the years, I think maybe I've become more conservative um, and and become more of. I, don't, I certainly don't script every minute, but I script a lot of it, and it because I think I've become deluged with all of these ed tech big software solutions that are supposed to solve all of our problems. Uh, I think Blackboard is one that a lot lot of people know, a lot of other LMSs. And I've begun to find that they they can help and they can hurt as well, you know, because you're kind of constrained by the software itself. And I think in the classroom, I find myself more conservative. So I need to open up, I think, a little more. And those I think those things are are related. I think you're being a little gentle about the LMS. I know many, many teachers <laughs> who hate them. Um, okay. The, the, it, it makes a lot of the administration of a class much easier. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really open up much of a space for learning that, mm-hmm. for, for the students. So this, uh, this Connected Courses course that we're teaching, it's all based on WordPress, oh, uh, which is you know uh, open, open source, has a very large uh, community. It's very configurable, and you can you can make a website, not just a blog, with menus and pages uh, with WordPress. So part of it is we have very very detailed how to. I ask my students before our first class meeting, uh, my my Stanford students, um, to create their own WordPress blog with their own domain, because part of this mastery. Of the of the literacies is to have some mastery of the publishing platform. Um, it's you know it's not all Facebook. We wouldn't be mm-hmm. talking about the web if it wasn't for millions of individuals who took the publishing platform into their own hands and created web pages. And now 
you know, Facebook and in particular, but, you know, we all use uh, Twitter and Flickr and Instagram. These are all great little platforms that gives you very, very little control. They're controlled by somebody else, but you could create your own publishing platform Mm -hmm. and for 20 or 30 bucks a year, you can, you can be in control of it. And then the teacher can create an aggregator that brings in um, the feeds from everybody's blog and puts it in a central place. So I think that there are ways of, of using technology to make learning more exciting and to, um, to make it more efficient and effective to bring people's different work together so that we can all see it without having that kind of constriction that the LMS had and that kind of proprietary world that you couldn't break out of that taught you to be the customer and not the publisher. Um, So I'm all for um, working around the LMS era and I don't think that we're we're really going to become the majority of the way people do things, but I'd like to create a kind of green space that in, in which people who want to be their own publishers, who want to explore learning outside the constraints of the LMS, um, will have the tools to do so, and they will have the scaffolding to learn how to use those tools to do so. Yeah, I think that's really important. And you're right about the LMS. It's it's a walled kind of area. You can't it's, and each class is isolated from each other class and it's isolated from the public as well. You know, I think that Facebook, Instagram, Twitter are are one step removed. They're corporations and they're, you know, they 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 own the data that you put there, but at least they're public, right? But what you're talking about is doing something that you actually own, right? It's your own space and your own um, publishing platform. And I think that's very powerful. And I, I've had students do that before, do blogs. I've had them make their own blogs on, on WordPress.com, not on their own domains. Um, and some of them take to it really well, and some are really reticent about it. But I think there's something about being public that is um, – very cool, right? And it's very different, you know? Well, if you're going to be successful a- after you get out of school, you are going to be public. Um, the, the, the people who have a public presence can, can control their, their presence. Um, you, you ought to learn how to do that while you're in school. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because when you get out of school, you're going to have to do that, you know, to a large extent, you know, and I think that's, you know, the theme I'm taking away is is learning about the tools, not not just using the tools, but learning about different tools and how they can help you learn even more. Right. You know, and and also I think empowering yourself with the tools rather than being a consumer of what's fed to you through the tools. Right. Right. I I agree completely. I know when I um and we'll wrap up in a second here. Um, I um. You know, I grew up in the 80s when, you know, and, and, and my dad bought me a computer really early on. And was, this is when you had to program, you know, you had to type in your own programs to make things happen. And to get on online, you had a B, you know, BBS systems that were mostly local. Uh, I know you were involved with the well, I think. Right. Um, so, you know, all about this. Right? And I remember the well being a big thing, even here in Michigan, knowing about that. And, you know, and um, and you had to learn how to do stuff. You know, not just yeah. hardware, but also the software and how to how 
how things happen, how things were connected. And I think that you, one can still do that. There are, there are resources aplenty to learn how things work, but we're not encouraged by the interfaces or by the software, by, by things like Facebook. And I think that you're right, learning how these things work and how to use them to your advantage and to do what you want to do to create, to produce, to publish, to communicate, to connect, I think is really, really important. And it, it, there's a little bit of resistance because of our slick interfaces and our little iPhones and all that, but it's doable, you know? Yeah. And I think that's, we're of one mind about that. (laughs) Yes. And I think that we can, you know, that's something that as no matter what you're teaching, that's something that can be taught in any, in any subject area as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much for doing this. But um, before we go, can you tell people where to find you? Well, you can find a a large collection of my stuff at Rheingold.com. The Stanford Library helped me put put that together. So particularly if you're interested in learning, there's a lot of things I've done around learning, but also my art, my writing about technology. On Twitter, I am hreingold, H-R-H-E-I-N-G-O-L-D. Um, mostly you'll find me on, on Twitter is the easiest way to, to find me in public. But if you, if you go to Rheingold.com, you'll see that I write a lot of uh, columns and do video interviews around digital media and learning as well. Yeah, and I'll definitely link to a lot of that. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we didn't talk about that I'll also link to, like your crap detection resources, right? <laughs> um, which great, I think is a great, great thing. Uh, I'll, I'll link to a bunch of that on on the uh, show notes because I think it's all going to be very, very interesting. And I'll link to um, to some of the courses you're running as well. So, Wonderful. I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you very much. Sure. My all pleasure. Right. <laughs> okay, it's nice talking Th- to you. Thanks, Eric. <laughs> all right, thanks Thank a lot. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Wet Podcast, Writing, Education, and Technology. Every Friday, you'll find a new episode. Uh, You can rate me on iTunes if you like. Uh, We're on Stitcher as well. You can find me at eMarsh. This has been Eric Marshall, your host. And this has been episode number three. Go to ericmarshall.net slash wet for more details. And we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot.